Our second lesson is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 5 and reading uh, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Again, if you have your scriptures with you, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read now from God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. When last we met, Paul made the proclamation that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle's conclusion after making a most convincing argument in the first four chapters that all of humanity is thoroughly corrupted by sin and that neither Jew nor Gentile can do anything to reverse the curse that resulted from Adam's sin. In other words, we are all helpless to save ourselves which explains why our salvation is not a matter of our obedience to God, but rather it's a matter of God's grace extended to us, whereby God's righteousness is imputed to those who receive His promise by faith. But that grace 
cannot be offered to us without God's justice also being satisfied, which explains why the crucifixion of God's only begotten Son was necessary. For in that moment, all of God's holy, justified wrath was poured out upon the only one worthy to stand in our place. And it is in the cross that we witness the depth of God's holy love for all those whom he has called. This is how peace was restored between God and those upon whom his favor rests. You will recall what Paul said in the first half of this chapter, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Beloved, the primary focus of the gospel message must always be the death and resurrection of Jesus the Son. There is no other moment in human history that is more important than that moment. What God did in Christ at Calvary will forever stand as the most significant moment in time. And yet now, Paul draws another conclusion. He says once again, therefore, he began verse 1 by saying therefore, and now he begins here in verse 12 by saying therefore. He's drawing another conclusion. He's drawing our attention now to the prelude of Calvary by comparing the person of Adam to Christ and vice versa. He goes so far as to say that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Paul is recognizing that there is a comparison to be found here between Adam and Christ Jesus. And in doing so, Paul gives us reason to consider not only the death of Christ, but also the great significance of his life. Sin, he says, came into the world because of Adam's disobedience to God's command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before that transgression, the world that God created was not only good, but God looked upon all that he had made and declared that it was very good. Adam and Eve were without sin. God did not create them with a propensity to sin. They did not have a sinful nature. They were morally innocent, and they were in relationship with God their Creator. But when Adam ate of the tree, sin entered the picture. And as a result, the sentence of death fell on every man, woman, and child. Whenever you hear mention of the doctrine of original sin, it does not refer to the first sin of Adam and Eve. It refers to the result of their sin. It refers to the fact that every person created thereafter 
by the union of a man and a woman does not start out like Adam and Eve did, morally innocent, but rather they are guilty from the moment of their conception. And while we like to speak of newborn infants as innocent, the truth of the matter is that they are guilty of Adam's sin because Adam's sin was imputed to every one of his descendants because Adam was acting as the representative of all humanity. Now that statement causes some resistance in some people. In the same way that some are wont to say, not my president, because they don't like the decisions that he makes, it does not change the fact that the duly elected individual who occupies the White House is the President of the United States, and as such is our President, is your President. And whatever legal decisions or actions the person occupying the Oval Office makes or takes, it will have an impact upon all the citizens of the United States. If the President signs a treaty with a foreign country, he's not acting simply for himself. But he understands that as the president, he represents every single American citizen. And his signature creates a consequence for all of us. When God created Adam and commanded him to not eat of the tree or else death would enter the picture, Adam understood that his decision would have consequences not just for him, but for all who would follow him. So the seminal moment of Adam's rebellion was imputed to every person who would proceed from him, unleashing a divine consequence that was both physical and spiritual. The reason every person dies is because we are all guilty of Adam's sin. His sin is put to the account of all. And we are just as guilty as he was and just as guilty if it had been us in the garden. One man's sin, one man's disobedience to God resulted in a curse being unleashed upon God's good creation that was so heinous it touched every part of the created order. When we reach Romans chapter 8, Paul is speaking there about the future glory that every believer should anticipate, for it is surely coming. But then he begins to speak of the fact that even creation is anticipating this consummation. And he says, beginning in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, Adam in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, there is a day coming when the full consummation of God's kingdom will arrive and we will experience the full reversal of the curse, even down to the level of the created order and a new heaven and a new earth will dawn. Now some may wonder why Adam, consuming what we have thought of as a piece of fruit, 
was such a horrible sin that it would result in such calamity. Well, it has to do not with the consumption of a piece of fruit, but with the desire that Adam had to be like God. Because that was the temptation, was it not? Even though God had said the day that you eat of it, you will die, Satan whispered, you will not surely die. The fruit will enable you to be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Adam's sin, then, was rebellion of the worst order. This was a mutiny of the worst kind. Instead of recognizing that he was a creature, Adam desired the vaunted place of Almighty God. Instead of recognizing that he was indebted to God for creating him and breathing life into him, Adam wanted to exist on the same plane as the one who alone is eternal. And whether the circumstance is an idyllic garden with a beautiful fruit tree millennia ago when the earth was without stain, or an illegal business decision made in a corporate boardroom in a high-rise in New York City, or a thug in the streets of Philly looking to make a drug deal before midnight, or a Hollywood starlet dumping her third boy toy in as many months, or a Russian computer hacker stealing someone's identity over the Internet, or you and I spending time engaged in whatever sinful rebellion we personally desire, the sin is always the same. None of us are inclined to subject ourselves to God's sovereignty. We want to be our own God. And this is why Paul explains here that one man's sin has made everyone guilty. As our representative in the garden, Adam chose what we all choose, to throw off God's reign and go our own way. But Paul says there has been one exception. There has been one who even in the face of great temptation has always chosen to submit himself to God's will. There has been one who was born into this fallen world who always resisted any opportunity to go his own way. Yes, he was fully human. Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. But he was also God. Fully. From the time that God's Son put on our flesh and was born in a stable in Bethlehem, until the time that he breathed his last on a cross on Calvary's hill, he always resisted the fruit dangling so close at hand. Even when Satan came to this one at a time when he was so terribly vulnerable and the devil encouraged him to satisfy his hunger by turning the stones around him into bread or to gain all the kingdoms of the world in order to put things to right or to be reassured that God the Father loved him, this one resisted because every one of those temptations was designed to deceive him into rebelling against God the Father and to ultimately avoid the cross of Calvary. At every turn, Satan sought 
to plant seeds of doubt in the mind of Jesus about his identity as the Son of God by encouraging him to put that to the test in order that he might be absolutely certain. But the Son of God saw through the deceit of each temptation because he knew the Word of God, and so he chose every time to trust God and to resist the devil. Even in the darkest hour, even when the horror of the cross was before him, and Jesus understood that what awaited him was the full brunt of God's wrath stored up because of our sin. And He was begging the Father to consider some alternative way to accomplish what needed to be done. He ended His prayer by submitting His full and complete will to the will of the Father. And when that moment of total alienation came and the Son experienced what He had never ever known before, crying out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Even then He did not sin. He did not curse God. He did not reject the Father. He did not utilize the power that was right there when He could have summoned 10,000 angels to rescue Him from the tree. But instead, He willingly laid down His own perfect sinless life out of His great love for His own. Do you see the magnitude of His life and how important it is. Do you see why it is that the one man's obedience far outweighs the one man's disobedience? Adam's one sin through all of creation into a bondage to sin and death that no one could reverse. But Jesus' obedience happened again and again and again, moment by moment, hour by hour, day after day, year after year. It wasn't simply that Jesus was given one temptation and He was obedient that one time. He was obedient every single second of His entire life. And it is this lifelong obedience that makes His sacrifice so efficacious. It is this utter surrender to God's sovereignty that makes Him suitable to serve as the substitute that God's perfect justice demands. Without His obedient life, without His sinless performance, God's demands would never have been satisfied. And you and I cannot skip over Jesus' life or reduce it to some happy-go-lucky existence that amounts to Him showing us how to live. Jesus did not come to show us how to live. He came to live in our place because Adam and all who followed Him have never been able to live life the way God intended. And by His life, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And this is why Paul refers to him in his first Corinthian letter as the last Adam. He says the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And this is the crux of the topology that Paul is referring to here in this Roman letter. 
God established a covenant of works with the first Adam, and Adam failed miserably to keep it. But the last Adam not only fulfilled that covenant, he far exceeded all the demands of the covenant. Paul says here in 15, 16, and 17 that the free gift is not like the trespass. And what he means is that while the impact of Adam's solitary sin was horrible in that it made everyone guilty of sin and subject to its penalty, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He says the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Because of one man's trespass, death gained a foothold everywhere. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, none of this would be possible had the life of Christ not been spotless and without blemish. For had Christ failed in any regard to love the Father with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength, with all his soul, he would not have been raised from the dead. But he completed perfectly all the work that the Father set before him to do. And so he was raised from the dead for our justification, Paul will soon tell us. And this is what makes the gospel good news. Even though Adam's trespass was imputed to every one of us, the righteousness of Christ is also imputed to everyone who places their faith and trust in Him. So before we are tempted to cry foul over Adam's trespass being counted to us, we need to hear the full story. For if God was operating under our definition of what is fair and just, none of us would ever be spared His holy judgment. Thank God for His love and patience and mercy. Thank the Son for His obedient life and death. Thank the Spirit for His regenerative power. By these things alone, we are offered a free gift that is so amazing that when God looks upon the one who has come to Christ in faith... God sees them as though they have never sinned. So beautiful are the robes of Christ's righteousness that are draped around them. The sacrament that is set before us this day, visibly and tangibly, offers an illustration of what it means to receive Christ and to have a share in His atoning work. We are invited to come to the table that He has prepared by His sacrifice. His body was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His stripes we are healed. His life blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And by faith, we receive Christ's atoning work and through our partaking of these elements we bear witness to what we believe. I trust that you have tasted 
of this free gift that God offers to all who will come in faith. If not, then know this. You may come even now. Would you bow your heads with me that we might pray together for a moment this morning?